This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. This week we're asking, would you risk your life to save someone else? Plenty of people do things like this, and so do other animals, and even, it turns out, bacteria. But why do they do it, and how did altruistic actions like this evolve in the first place? Plus, in the news, scientists clone monkeys, the modified cold virus that selectively attacks pancreatic cancer, and why bees might be bad for other pollinators. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, let's take a look at one of the big stories of this week. A paper in the journal Cell announced the successful cloning of two macaques, which are a kind of monkey. But what does all this mean for us humans? Georgia Mills reports. You may have noticed the recent headlines announcing the successful cloning of monkeys in China. And while some of the broadsheets are heralding this as dawn of the planet of the clones, this is not what the research was about. So what's new here? There was a similar splash of headlines when Dolly the sheep was born. She was the first mammal cloned from an adult cell using a technique called nuclear transfer. Basically, the genetic material from an adult cell was placed inside an unfertilised egg that previously had its own DNA removed. The result, Dolly, was a sheep that was genetically identical to the adult cell used to make her. She was a clone. Since then, mice, cows, pigs, cats and dogs have been cloned using the same process. But not primates. The technique just didn't work. The closest scientists came was in 1999 when a rhesus monkey was cloned using a different method called embryo splitting. But the announcement this week of the creation of monkey clones Zhongzhong and Huahua in China shows that the dolly approach can successfully be used in non-human primates. The team achieved what had previously been impossible by adding two molecules to the cell. These helped to regulate which regions of the DNA were red and allowed the cell to be reprogrammed. 
Nevertheless, the process is still very inefficient. It took 79 embryo attempts to create these two new monkeys. Plus, this cloning was done using fetal cells rather than adult ones, such as in Dolly's case. Although this was attempted, it didn't work. And critically, the aim of the project was categorically not to develop ways to clone humans. The purpose is for studying human diseases. By having populations of genetically identical monkeys, researchers can test drugs and learn about how diseases work much more precisely. The Chinese lab have confirmed they followed international guidelines for animal research set by the US National Institutes of Health. However, research on monkeys is very expensive and many question the ethics of using primates, even when it could lead to treatments for diseases like Parkinson's or cancer. So could an errant scientist use this technique to clone a human? Well, it's important to note this technique did not work for adult cells, so cloning a living person is still outside of our abilities. What's more, it's illegal in the UK and many other countries to clone humans, and scientists have branded the idea as stupid and pointless. So this should be very low down on our list of worries. And finally, cloning has a bit of a bad rap, with one spokesman from an organisation that shall not be named branding it Frankenscience. But the existence of clones is completely natural. Many species clone themselves all the time, including us. Identical twins are technically clones and won't thank you for being compared to Frankenstein's monster. So while their techniques being used here are something science has invented, the existence of clones themselves is not. So we won't be worrying about human cloning just yet, but there are still interesting debates to be had around the subject of primate research. Well, onto something quite different now, and that's pancreatic cancer. The long-term survival rates from pancreatic cancer are notoriously grim. Steve Jobs, Patrick Swayze, Alan Rickman, Luciano Pavarotti, they're all well-known recent victims. And the prognosis tends to be so dismal because pancreatic cancers usually come to light only at very advanced stages of the disease, and by then the cancer has already spread to other parts of the body. Now, Stella Mann and Ganelle Haldayan from Queen Mary University of London have found a way to modify a common cold virus to turn it into a form that can be injected safely into the bloodstream where it infects and destroys pancreatic cancer cells, including those that have spread to other parts of the body. We have a long experience with developing cold viruses, uh, so-called adenovirus, into mutated versions of the virus that can only target and kill cancer cells. Our idea was based on targeting pancreatic cancer specifically. And another advantage with adenoviruses and the cold virus is that they can also sensitize Uh, cancer cells to the current chemotherapeutic drugs. So you would kill the cancer cell with the virus. You would also help the chemotherapeutic drugs to kill the cancer cells. And then you could also reactivate the immune system. So that was the idea behind this. So Stella, what you're effectively trying to do here is to reprogram what would be a cold virus and be spread by coughs and sneezes and make it attack cancer cells. What was your approach to doing that? How did you do that? In pancreatic cancer cells, they have a protein displayed on the outside of these cells that is not displayed on normal cells. So we took advantage of that, and we've changed the outer coat of the virus so that this virus can now target the cancer cell and not the normal cells. Another modification is that we've 
engineered the virus so that it can enter the, the normal cells, but it won't do anything. But when it enters into the cancer cell, it can replicate and make, make more copies of itself. And then the virus bursts out of that cancer cell, killing the cell in the process and go on infect the neighbouring cells. So in essence, we have a virus that seeks out actively cancerous cells of the type that you're going for. Yes. It only grows actively in those cells. And then once it's grown and increased its number, it buds out from the infected cells and infects all of the neighbouring cancerous cells if there are any. So in essence, what it's doing is it's growing until it runs out of cancer cells to kill and then it will just stop. That's right. That's the idea <laughs> behind it. Yeah. Which is why um, we needed to also develop it so that it can be delivered via the bloodstream so that you can reach cancer cells that may have already spread away from its original site of growth. And Gannon, when you do this, is it safe to inject this virus? Are you sure that it's capable of targeting exclusively the cancer cells that you think it's targeting? Or is it possible it could get into non-cancerous cells and do harm? We haven't obviously tried it in uh, clinical trials yet, but when we have done animal studies, and in animals it works exactly as Stella just explained. So if we can inject it in the blood, it will go to the tumour, it will express its genes and start replicating in the cancer cells. But we haven't found it in any other tissues in the animals, so it seems safe. And Stella, one of the key things about cancer is it's a moving target because it's a genetically unstable entity and it means that it adapts, it evolves and it becomes resistant to things like chemotherapy drugs. Is there a way in which the cancers could evolve to duck away from your virus so the virus can no longer attach itself to the cancer and get in via the mechanism that you're relying on at the moment? Um, there's always a possibility I guess the length of the animal study is not long enough to see that, but we didn't see anything like that in our in our animal studies. So we haven't seen any evidence of that. Sounds very encouraging, doesn't it? Now, given that these are cold viruses, adenoviruses, is there not a possibility that if someone has experienced exposure to a virus like this before, they could be immune to it and therefore that would limit its ability to work? Yeah, it is possible, especially if you give the virus in the bloodstream. But from other studies with similar viruses, it seems to be possible for the virus to still reach the tumour the first time. Maybe the second time you would have to modify the virus a little bit. But it's not a major problem. Most of the virus will reach the tumour. So what's the next step then? You've proved that you can do this in cultured cells. You've proved you can do this in a limited way in animals. Animals don't naturally get pancreatic cancers like we do. So there is an inherent limitation to what you can achieve in animals. Is the next step then to go into humans? The next step would be I would like to or we would like to first investigate a little bit more about the immune response in uh, animals. And then we would go on and study toxicity in larger animals. And after that, we would be ready to apply for funding to go into early stage clinical trials. You probably get asked this a lot at dinner parties, both of you. But um, have you seen the film I Am Legend? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> we use it any in thoughts our slides. <laughs> any, any reactions to that? <laughs> Well, those those movies look very scary, don't they? They look it makes it look like a disaster zone. So we were actually expecting uh, questions like this. But luckily, this virus is not the same type of virus, so 
it doesn't carry the same risks. <laughs> Let's hope not. Stella Mann and before her, Gunnell Howdayan, and this study has just come out in the journal Molecular Cancer Therapeutics. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the naked scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, The Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Still to come, the downside of keeping bees and we answer the question, why does my pasta float when I cook it? It's food for thought, isn't it? We're also talking later about the question of altruism. And uh, if you would like to share an example of people being altruistic, the kindest thing a stranger did for you, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientist. You can also write on Facebook. And we heard from Danielle who said, I'd just come back from a 35-hour trek from the Falklands for research. I was exhausted. It was late. I needed to buy a train ticket at Oxford Station. My money wouldn't work in the machine because it was Falklands pounds. There's a surprise. There was nobody to ask but a nice couple behind me gave me £10 to buy my ticket so I finally got to my hotel. Very kind of them. So I gave them a £5 Falklands note adorned with penguins as a thank you. Well thank you for sending that in Danielle and I'm very glad that your story had a happy ending. Meanwhile scientists have announced this week that they've built miniature soft-bodied robots that can walk, jump and even swim inside living tissues. And while this may sound like the plot from a sci-fi horror film, the researchers behind the breakthrough believe it could transform healthcare. Lewis Thompson has the story. In the 1966 film Fantastic Voyage, a submarine crew shrink down to microscopic size and are injected into the body of a scientist to remove a blood clot from his brain. Although far-fetched, the film does highlight one of the biggest difficulties in treating medical problems, making sure treatment gets only to where it's needed. Shrinking scientists is still some way off, but could a robot come to the rescue in the meantime? Met in City at the Max Planck Institute in Germany thinks so. The objective of our research has been to create a new tiny robot that can have many different types of locomotion modalities inside complex environments like our body. And also we wanted to achieve not only navigation capabilities in such a robot, also we wanted to achieve new functions like carrying a cargo and delivering it in a right location that we want. Resembling a tiny sheet of rubber, just a few millimetres long and less than a millimetre thick, the robot the team have come up with looks quite simple, but is actually incredibly sophisticated. Made of elastic silicon, the sheet is packed with microscopic magnetic particles, which allow the team to use magnetic fields to control the shape of the robot and to make it move. The robot is enclosed inside a space where we have outside many electromagnetic coil systems that we design for medical applications. And these coils can generate uniform magnetic fields that we can change both the direction and also magnitude precisely. Then, depends on this magnitude and the direction of the magnetic field, the robot changes body shape into different deformations and those deformations also are changed by time. That way it can undulate its body, it can deform in specific ways, 
and then also rotate his body to create all different uh, swimming and walking and jumping type of behaviours. The team set up obstacle courses to simulate different areas inside the human body to see how well their robot could cope with different anatomical terrains. Our robot has seven different navigation capabilities. We can walk, we can also jump, and also we can crawl inside enclosed cavity, like say in a vascular system or in a tubular system. Then when we get into any region where we have fluids, the robot can navigate on the water surface by skimming through it, by undulating, or by climbing on the water surface using body shape change. And then next is we can dive under the water and swim like a jellyfish. If you count all of them, we have seven capabilities or different conditions where we might have inside our body. The next step for the robot is to venture inside the body, controlled by external magnetic sources like those used in MRI machines. To get inside our body would enable us to reach areas that we cannot reach without surgery So this tiny robot can be swallowed or injected inside the body or through a small incision we could put it anywhere inside our body and then we would navigate it using our magnetic control to get them to a target location first and then using the functional capability of delivering a drug or a cargo we could deliver a let's say drug in a specific location for uh, medical use that would help us a lot in cancer therapy and many other applications. So who knows? Maybe before too long, these little robots will be making their own fantastic voyage through your body. It's amazing, isn't it? Lewis Thompson there. And the study he was discussing was published in Nature. To something a bit bigger now, the bee. Who doesn't like to think of the humble honeybee buzzing around, helpfully pollinating crops and wild plants? Concerns over declines in honeybee populations have resulted in substantial media coverage and a push to up their numbers. But some scientists think that this focus on honeybees could be causing problems for other pollinators. With us is Cambridge University's Jonas Geldman, who's written an article about this. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, a lot of us think of honeybees as being these cute little insects buzzing around. What's the problem with bolstering their populations? So honeybees are effectively an agricultural species. Uh, We generally have them to produce honey and we have them to pollinate our crops. But when the amount of nectar and pollen from our crops doesn't match the number of honeybees, uh, they will go and forage in natural habitats, in nature all around us. And that can create competition with other pollinator species. So what kind of other pollinators are we talking about? Primarily bees, but it's also butterflies, it's hoverflies that helps the natural habitats with the pollination services. And do we have an idea of how much responsibility these wild pollinators bear in terms of the services they provide? There's two aspects to that. So in terms of the actual agriculture where we depend on our honeybees, there are studies that actually show that as much as 50% of the pollination services could potentially be delivered by our wild pollinators. So they could play a major role there. Outside of our crops, they could potentially be responsible for all of the pollination. Okay, so managed honeybees are affecting the resources that are available to these other wild pollinators. Is there anything else that we should be concerned about? 
Honeybees also carry a lot of diseases that they can transmit to wild pollinators simply because they share the same flowers. It's it's almost the same as if you have a candy ball on a table. That's sort of the equivalent of the flower. And if one person who's sick uh, eats a bit of candy out of that, the next person who's who's going to take some candy is likely to have a higher risk of being sick as well. Oh yeah, I think it's important to say that while this potentially is a problem in some of our sort of very resource-poor uh, habitats, where most of our threatened pollinators are, the biggest problems to to pollinators, both the managed honeybee and, and the, the wild pollinators, is still intensive agriculture, it's pesticides, it's this simplification of the landscape that leaves less and less wildflowers uh, around for both the honeybees and the wild pollinators to forage on. But when that's the case, there will be areas where the wild pollinators will likely be additionally threatened by the fact that there are honeybees. What can we do to address this balance? In the areas where we really set aside land for nature and for biodiversity, we probably shouldn't have honeybees. And this probably includes a buffer. Uh, Honeybees can forage as much as 10 kilometers away from their hives, generally less, but they can move that far away. So it will likely require a buffer. In the areas where, where that's not the case, I think there's a need to sort of assess what the actual need is for honeybees. So right now, because there's a fairly large disconnect between the farmers who need pollination services and the predominantly sort of hobby type of honeybee keepers, there's no coordination between what actually is the needs for pollinating services from the honeybees and for the number of honeybees. And this is obviously both in space but also in time. Many of these agricultural crops are in bloom for a very short period of the year. So a more strategic matching of the number of managed honeybees compared to the wild pollinators. What is the the sort of comparison when one considers the impact of people keeping a few bees, a few million bees, compared with farmers with intensive agricultural methods, pesticides, other kinds of chemicals that are going on those fields? Is it not just kind of David and Goliath? It's another complicated question. So in much of Western Europe, the United Kingdom, including biodiversity is in a massive crisis. We're seeing declines of insects uh, way beyond the pollinators. And this is likely largely because of an intensive agriculture that both takes up a huge amount of, of area where there's growing nothing but one single type of crop. They're cleaning out the areas around the fields and they're using pesticides that kills almost anything that's on the field and is likely to have an impact outside of the field. So this is obviously sort of across almost any organism, the biggest problem for nature. But honeybees are an exceptionally effective pollinator and collector of nectar. So in areas where there are absolutely no agriculture, but where there are very pristine nature, very valuable nature, and people are putting these honeybee hives in, they are having an impact on the native wild pollinators. And they're having it uh, for no good reason. So I think it is a place that is still worth sort of exploring, even though it's by no means the biggest challenge to nature in, in the UK or anywhere else in the world, really. Jonas Gelman, thank you very much. And the piece he wrote has just come out in the journal Science. Thank you, Katie. Music from different cultures can sound extremely different. For instance, a Scottish ballad might not have very much in common with an Australian healing song, by the sound of it. But is there something intrinsically in music that crosses cultural divides and can tell us what the music was originally intended for? 
my name is Samuel Mayer. I'm a cognitive scientist at Harvard where I direct the music lab in the Department of Psychology. We started by working with a project called the Natural History of Song Project, and that's a project where we're basically taking modern techniques um, from the cognitive sciences, from data science, from a few other fields, to try and systematically characterize different features of music and musical behavior from around the world. So basically, we, we took this data set that we had built um, for this bigger project, which is a, a systematically built collection of four different kinds of songs from 86 small-scale societies around the world. Um, there are dance songs, lullabies, healing songs, and love songs. So we took the sample. We've got 118 different songs split across those genres. We randomly selected a very short snippet of each song, 14 seconds long. And then we took all those snippets and we played them to people all over the world, people who lived in 60 different countries and who were recruited on the Internet. All we did is, for each little excerpt that they listened to, we asked them a series of questions. We said, tell us if you think that the singers definitely do not use the song for such and such or definitely use the song for such and such. And in these questions, such and such was something like use the song for dancing or use the song to soothe an infant or to heal illness. So the question is, can these naive listeners on the Internet who've never heard these songs, they don't know anything about these cultures, can they tell what a song is for, what its function is, on the basis of its musical forms, what, you know, what's actually there in the recording? <laughs> My name is Manvir Singh. I'm a PhD student in human evolutionary biology, also at Harvard University. What we found was that people seem to be very, very good at identifying dance songs. The effect for people rating dance songs as being used for dancing compared to other songs was huge. People are also really good at identifying lullabies. People are okay at identifying healing songs, so there was an effect, but that was smaller than, than the effects that we saw for dance songs and lullabies. And then we found that people are actually not able to identify love songs. And kind of relatedly, we also asked two extra questions on the side. So is it used for mourning the dead and is it used for telling a story? And interestingly, people rated healing songs as especially high on the dimension mourning the dead. And although they couldn't recognize love songs as being used to communicate love, they did uh, rate love songs as especially high on the dimension being used to tell a story, which is kind of an interesting finding that maybe has implications for what love songs are and, and how they how they do communicate love. There was pretty much strong agreement among experts in the field that we were not going to find the things that we did actually find in the study. It was the sort of standard view was you know, music is culturally produced. It doesn't have things in common with one another across cultures. You know, each culture has their own really interesting, unique, you know, musical idiom on the world. Um, and our study is not saying that that's wrong. Our study is saying that even though it's really clear that from culture to culture there's incredible variation and really, you know, insane differences in how dance songs are used and what they sound like and there's all sorts of differences, underlying all of that really interesting variance is the simple fact that these songs are all produced by human minds and human minds have features in common with one another. Just because there's a lot of really interesting variance doesn't necessarily mean that cultures don't have things in common with one another. Hey. 
We definitely don't know from, from our study why there are dance songs and why there are lullabies. But one thing we do know is that people around the world respond to a certain string of musical stimuli in a similar way. People around the world have minds that when they hear some certain kind of stimulus want to dance. They want to kind of move their body. And, and similarly, people around the world have minds that respond to, to a very, very different kind of sound by being calmed and falling asleep. Why humans have those minds is an open question, but our study at least kind of pushes us forward in showing us that we do seem to have those minds. And kind of relatedly and much more weird, people have seem to have minds that in response to certain kinds of musical stimuli, seem to think they're being healed spiritually, which is a much more kind of bizarre and fun question. And the music used in that piece was from Scotland, Rwanda, Micronesia, the Andes, Ecuador and Eastern Africa. But could you tell what they were used for? Speaking there were Sam Mur and Manveer Singh, both at Harvard University. Their study was published in Current Biology and the piece was put together by Georgia Mills. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories that we've been discussing in the news this week, you can find the transcripts and the references for those stories and the rest of the show, actually, and in fact, every programme we've ever made on our website. That's nakedscientist.com. Follow the links from podcasts and it's all free. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. For the next part of the programme, we're going to look at behaviours like this. On the 2nd of January 2007, construction worker Wesley Autry was standing on the subway platform waiting with his two daughters for the train to arrive. Beside him, a young man began to have a seizure and fell onto the tracks, with a train fast approaching. Autry, realising there wasn't enough time to pull him up, jumped down onto the tracks and lay on top of the man, pinning him to the ground to stop him flailing. Amazingly, the train passed over them, missing Autry by just an inch. This is just one of many examples of instances when an individual has risked their own life to save someone else. And although this may seem like a very human thing to do, altruism, sacrificing something of yours for the good of another individual, is a behaviour found in many species. Individuals will give up their food, breeding rights, even lives, to help others survive. But if evolution is all about the survival of the fittest, how do behaviours like this evolve? And the answer is that it's probably a very ancient trait, because surprisingly, even some of the smallest organisms on Earth behave in a similar way. George Salmond isn't one of the smallest organisms on Earth, but he is from the University of Cambridge and he studies altruism among something that is, and those are bacteria. So, George, under what circumstances are bacteria altruistic? Bacteria, like every other living organism on the planet, are susceptible to virus infection. For bacteria, these are called bacteriophages or bacterial viruses, and these viruses only attack bacteria. The virus adsorbs to the bacteria, injects its genetic material, and essentially turns the bacterial cell into a a factory for virus production. And then generally these infected cells burst open to release lots of new virus, which then goes on to infect other bacteria in the population. So if you're a bacterium, there's a whole series of different strategies that have evolved to resist the potentially lethal effects 
a viral infection. And the one that we have found, the bacteria appear to commit suicide after viral infection. This superficially doesn't seem like a clever strategy, but actually that leads to the termination of replication of any invading virus. That means there's no release of any new virus, and that means the rest of the bacterial population are protected from uh, subsequent viral infection. The bacteria are essentially putting themselves into isolation, albeit terminally, in order to prevent the spread of that infection through their population. How do they know they've been infected? Well, that's a very good question. We, we know that only certain bacterial viruses can induce this system. It's called abortive infection. And essentially, they must be titrating a particular viral signal, which we're currently trying to investigate. And uh, they, in their cells, they have a, a thing called a toxin, antitoxin system. And somehow the viral product seems to stimulate or destabilize this toxin antitoxin system, which leads to the, uh, the killing of the bacterial cell, the suicidal event. So I suppose you could think of it as a bit like a seesaw where you've got a balance. There's this toxin trying to tell the cell to die, an antitoxin telling it to stay alive. And when the virus comes along, it adds weight to the end of the seesaw that says die. And that triggers the cell to then say, well, I must wipe myself out because if I allow this virus to replicate in me, I'm going to then infect the rest of my population. What's the benefit to the population as a whole of that bacterium surrendering itself? You need to think of bacterial populations, of course, as clonal. And so, um, what, is, what does that mean? They're all identical in a population. What, so, genetically, because they're splitting. So when one becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight and so on, it's just because the cells are dividing. So they're sharing the, exactly the same genetic information. That's right. They're identical in that sense. So you can view that if one cell gets infected by a virus and gives up its life, then it's protecting the rest of the clones in that population. So the genes survive because the same genes are running in that entire group of bacteria, mm -hmm. but the individual cell that got infected has wiped itself out, but it doesn't really care because the genes are being propagated. Absolutely. Now, how do you think that this behaviour evolves in the first place? Because that's pretty complicated that they've been able to do that. The system we've been investigating... We don't know that that system is titrating the availability of virus infection in every case. We think that there may be other environmental signals that also can stimulate this uh, suicidal event, for example, nutritional stress. Um, and so, so the bacteria, if they're going hungry, sorry to interrupt, if they're mm -hmm. going hungry, they could, for instance, think, well, if I wipe myself out, some of my friends may still make it. That may be one strategy, yeah. So are you saying that the same sort of system could be co-opted in response to lots of different stresses and pressures, that the bacteria could just ultimately use this to minimise the number of viable organisms, therefore minimise their demand on the food supply, but maximise the chances that that strain or species will survive? That may be happening in some cases. You know, this is quite a complicated area because the amount of information on the mechanisms involved, are, are, there's a paucity of information there. Um, but in, in our case, studying viral replication, it's very clear that, uh, that the population survives in the presence of the virus. So there you go. Bacteria don't just behave badly. Sometimes they can behave altruistically as well. Thank you, George. That's George Salmond. He is from the University of Cambridge. So bacteria have been known to sacrifice themselves to save their own clones. But why might animals act altruistically? Well, one species with a particularly strong community spirit is the meerkat. And to find out more about why meerkats help each other out rather than just fend for themselves, Lewis Thompson and I met up with one very knowledgeable human and some rather excitable meerkats. 
Hello, I'm Tim Clavenbrock. I'm a zoologist at the University of Cambridge and I work principally on Kalahari meerkats and we work in a site in the southern Kalahari just on the South African Botswana border. So we're not in the Kalahari right now. We have come to the animal experience in Cambridgeshire and we're surrounded by about five meerkats, I think. They're all running around. Should we go and sit down and get a bit closer to them? Fine. <laughs> so they're climbing over Tim's shoe at the moment. I'm not sure if he thinks it's food or... <laughs> no, don't go for the microphone cable. Oh, I've got... Oops, you've got a meerkat on you. <laughs> I've got a meerkat on me. He wants no, to be interviewed. He wants to, to <laughs> smell my mouth too closely, I think. Well, the unusual thing about meerkats is that they're one of the most cooperative animals in the world. And for evolutionary biologists, cooperation poses a problem. So it's not difficult to understand why animals compete with each other because they're competing for food and breeding opportunities and so on. But meerkats, like a number of social insects, spend much of their time helping other individuals to breed rather than breeding themselves. So groups typically consist of one breeding male and one breeding female, and then a variable number of individuals, sometimes 20 or 30 individuals, uh, many of them fully mature, that spend a large part of their lives helping to rear offspring born to the breeding female. They enjoy eating people's ears. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Eventually, the meerkats decided that our producer's ears weren't really worth eating. Back to Tim. So cooperation on this level is unusual in mammals. And meerkats have a complex system of helping so that when the dominant female uh, is producing pups, other individuals clear out the burrow. Some of the non-breeding females will lactate to the young of the breeding female. When the group leaves the breeding burrow in the morning to go foraging and the breeding female goes with them, one of the helpers will stay and protect the young for the rest of the day, with the result that they spend a full 24 hours without getting any food. And then once the pups start to move with the group and forage, which they do at about three weeks after they're born, the members of the group go and collect food and they bring it to the pups. And most of the members of the group give away around half of all the food they find to the pups. And they do that for the first sort of three to four months of pup life. And when the group's foraging, it's commonly the case that one individual stops feeding, goes up in a raised guard and looks for predators and gives alarm calls if it sees predators. This raised guard is that classic image of meerkats standing up like footballers defending a free kick. They're ready to alert their troop to any eagles, snakes or jackals. So why put their neck on the line like this? The only animals that live in cooperative systems like this are animals where all the group members are closely related. Because most of them in a meerkat group, most of the individuals are full siblings. So they're helping to rear individuals that are 50% related to them, which is the same level of relatedness as their offspring would be if they produce offspring themselves. So if their parents are much more likely to be able to produce and rear offspring than they would themselves, another way of breeding, if you like, is to help their parents produce further siblings rather than trying to breed themselves. But why does being closely related, that is, having a similar genetic makeup or genotype, matter? Well, if you put it in the simplest way, 
animals are selected to maximise the proliferation of their genotype in future generations. So if you're helping to rear individuals that are 50% related to you, you're extending the proliferation of your genotype into future generations, just as you are if you breed yourself. If, on the other hand, you're helping an individual that's only 5% related to you, you are making very little contribution by that to the proliferation of your genes into future generations. So do you think altruism is an appropriate term to use when we're talking about meerkat behaviour? Well, it all depends what you mean by altruism. These individuals are helping other individuals breed, but that for them is the best way of ensuring the proliferation of their genotype. So there's a real evolutionary benefit to these individuals, but they certainly are helping other individuals at some cost to themselves. So in a sort of technical sense, yes, I'd call that altruism. That was Lewis Thompson there with Cambridge University's Tim Cluttenbrock and a rather panicky me who the meerkats seem to find particularly entertaining. Did you compare the meerkats? I, d- I didn't. I missed the trick there. No, yeah, you did. So far we've heard why many individuals might make sacrifices for their close relatives like the meerkats and also like the bacteria that we heard about. But what about when it comes to individuals that we're not related to? I went for a wander along the banks of the River Cam with Anglia Ruskin University's Claudia Vasher to hear about reciprocal altruism. Reciprocal altruism means that one individual would show a behaviour which is costly for the individual showing the behaviour. However, this behaviour benefits another individual. So one example would be alarm calling. If one individual gives an alarm call, this is actually costly for the individual because it might attract the predator to itself, but it might benefit individuals in the surrounding. And usually those individuals are not related, so we cannot say that it's benefiting related individuals, but it's unrelated individuals. So it's like if I saw someone creeping up on you and they're going to push you in the river over there, and I shouted out, Claudia, be careful, there's someone going to chuck you in the river, they could come and push me in the river. So I'm doing you a service, but I'm also taking a risk myself. So why is it reciprocal then? Because it is repeated interactions. So usually it is individuals showing this behaviour towards other individuals who will help back in future. So I'm helping you with the expectation that when the tables are turned and you see someone about to push me in the river, you're then hopefully going to warn me. Yes, exactly. What other sort of tangible examples are there of this happening then in nature? So in primates, for example, you would see individuals grooming each other reciprocally. So this can be measured up to the minute sometimes. So one individual would groom another one for five minutes and would get exactly the five minutes back. Um, there is the alarm calling example, so individuals warn other individuals. Um, this is especially the case in territorial bird species, for example. So here territory neighbours would get familiar to each other, so they know each other, and they would be reciprocal in attacking predators who would enter the territories. Another example is food sharing, for example the vampire bats would share food with other individuals in a reciprocal manner. What do they share, a jugular vein or something? (laughs) Kind of. So actually they're quite dependent on finding blood every day because otherwise they would starve to death. Um, So after they have been foraging, they would then meet in, in caves. And then sometimes there are individuals who haven't found prey during the day. And then other individuals would give them blood. Jolly generous of them. What's to stop someone cheating the system, though? Because I could rely on you warning me I'm about to go in that river. 
but I might not return the favour. So how has it evolved, do you think, that actually we do scratch each other's backs? As reciprocal altruism is depending on repeated interactions, individuals would just stop at some point. So if I see that I'm giving you things like I'm grooming you all the time or I'm giving you food and I don't get anything back from you, I will just stop the interaction. So this is also a situation where we have uh, inequity aversion, which is a behavior that individuals would respond negatively to a situation where they're treated unequal. So for example, primates have been trained to exchange a piece of food with a human experimenter for another piece of food. And then in this experimental situation, two primates have been tested with the human, and one of the primates would get a grape for exchanging and the other would get a cucumber and they like grapes much more than the cucumbers. So at some point the monkeys receiving um, the cucumbers actually stopped the interaction, stopped the behavior, they stopped exchanging because they didn't like to be treated unfair. And it went to a point that this monkey being treated unfair would even throw the cucumber at the human experimenter to really show that they really didn't like this behavior. That's quite high-level cognition, though, isn't it? For me to be able to tell whether you're giving me a bad deal or not, I have to put myself in your shoes and ask what would you do to me and vice versa. So does that limit what sorts of species are capable of this sort of behaviour? Yes, definitely. So reciprocal altruism has been suggested as the form of cooperation which takes the most advanced cognition. So there are certain cognitive prerequisites individuals need to have to engage in reciprocal altruism. So one of this is inequity aversion. They need to be able to have an estimate what are the costs for me, what am I getting out of the interaction. The second thing they need to know is they need to recognize individuals. They need to recognize their cooperation partners and to memorize them, which sounds trivial, but it's not as trivial for non-human animals. And the third thing is that individuals also need to be able to cope with a delay of gratification. Because if I'm doing something which is costly for me now and I only get back the benefits some when in future, I need to be able to cope with this delay, which again sounds very trivial, but we also know even from humans that it is very, very difficult uh, for humans. Imagine somebody tells you, you can have this piece of cake now or you wait and you will get two pieces somewhere in future. You probably say like, OK, I don't wait, I just take this piece now. But some people do have their cake and eat it straight away, don't they? Why do you think this evolved in the first place? My guess would be that complex societies make it necessary. So if you live in a complex society of unrelated individuals, you probably need to cooperate with each other in order to achieve a common aim. So it's likely that if you're repeatedly interacting with non-related individuals, that a system like this evolves. Claudia Vascher, and I'm very pleased to say neither of us ended up in the river, thankfully, at the end of that interview. So microorganisms, meerkats, monkeys, they all behave altruistically for different reasons. But what about us humans? We're joined now by Sander van der Linden from Cambridge University. Sander, we like to think of ourselves as very altruistic, but how different are we from other animals? Well, I think when it comes to human altruism, there is a defining feature, whereas in biology it's about increasing the fitness of an organism at the expense 
of your own fitness or your own potential to reproduce genetically. With humans, it's all about psychological motivations that we have to disentangle. So what are the motivations for helping someone else? And I think that poses a fundamental problem to trying to figure out how altruistic we are exactly in different situations. So how do we explain the random acts of kindness, the Good Samaritan, say Wesley Orchie we heard about before, who dived in front of the train to to help that person he didn't know? How do we explain that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've heard about kin selection. Sometimes we help other people because they're genetically related. We've heard about reciprocal altruism. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, But what about those cases where you're not going to interact with a stranger ever again? Why would you be incentivized to help that person? So I'd like to split that out into two motives, an individual motive. A lot of research shows that people derive positive internal benefits from helping other people. So when we help other people, our heart rate tends to go down, our blood pressure tends to go down. It can have positive impacts on depression. Um, When you put people in neuroimaging scans, it sort of shows that the reward center of the brain lights up in certain situations. And so economists sort of refer to this as warm glow. Um, And so the idea is that people derive pleasant emotional experiences from helping other people. The other is more social, that we care as a group living species, we care about our image. Uh, You see this in primates too, but especially uh, in humans, we care about our reputation. We want to be seen as a cooperative individual who's going to help and benefit the group. Um, that we're going to essentially do our bit because that's an adaptive advantage to have as a group member. This is called image motivation. Is this inherited or learned? Another great question. So we learn about norms in our societies. To some extent, this evolves, but on a more simpler level, uh, we acquire norms through social learning. So if it's the norm to help other people, we learn that from other people. Sometimes norms are institutionalized and they get passed over from uh, decade to decade. And even if you talk about cultural evolution over larger time periods. But culture is a, there's a lot of variation in culture. So the extent to which culture replicates like a gene is a bit more complex. But certainly we inherit rules and rules of thumb and norms from observing other people. So this notion of it feels good to do good deeds. Does the dopamine reward system come into play here? Yeah, so some studies show that the uh, dopaminogenic pathways are activated uh, when people think about donating, for example, or helping other people. And so these feel-good neurotransmitters are released. Now, sometimes it's a bit difficult to disentangle because there's always other factors that can activate uh, similar neural substrates. And so it's always a bit difficult to tease out causality. But generally, those factors are associated with helping other people. Could the notion of being nice to strangers, could this idea have evolved as a byproduct from it being beneficial to be nice to your friends or your your peer group? Well, I think it's difficult to tease out basic mechanisms such as the ability to experience pleasure, which is not necessarily related to altruism, right? Even though those mechanisms are associated with helping other people, those mechanisms weren't necessarily they didn't necessarily evolve solely for that purpose, right? And so I, I think that that is difficult to say. But generally, helping other people is adaptive. In a group living species, it's extremely adaptive if groups are able to cooperate because then they can outperform groups that don't cooperate. And so the fact that these behaviors are adaptive, um, to some extent, I'd like to think at least that people on some level recognize that helping other people is adaptive and that that is the reason why it makes us uh, feel good in the end. But of course, the ultimate answer to that remains somewhat of a mystery. (laughs) So if helping others makes us feel good, is that such thing as a good deed if we're getting something from it? 
This is one of the questions I always ask my students. I can reduce any good behavior to an egoistic motive, right? If it makes you feel good, it disqualifies as as true, pure altruism. Um, so if you jump in front of a train to help somebody else, if you experience the slightest amount of warm glow in that act, theoretically, it could disqualify as pure altruism. But I think that's not the key factor because it seems that it'd be unrealistic for us to be so altruistic all of the time, right? So I think if we help other people and we feel good about it and there's a mutual benefit, maybe we should satisfy uh, for that. <laughs> that's a relief. Sander van der Linden from Cambridge University, thank you very much. So bacterium, meerkat, monkey or man, there are many reasons to bother being nice, including that for humans, it can make you feel pretty good. And I'll bear that in mind. As we enter the last few minutes of the programme, there's just time to sneak in this question of the week. Lewis Thompson has been cooking up an answer to this question from Martin. Why, when cooking fresh pasta or gnocchi, does it rise to the surface when it's ready? As far as I can see, the dough is solid, so I can't see how the density decreases. We asked Dr Christopher Brock, Senior Lecturer in Food Sciences at London South Bank University. The main ingredients of fresh pasta are water, eggs and durum wheat semolina, which is the same material as wheat flour, but it has a coarser texture. The wheat contains starch, which in raw pasta dough is in the form of tiny granules, each one just a few hundredths of a millimetre across. The properties of the granules as a material are similar to microscopic beads of glass and they are denser than water. This is why fresh, uncooked pasta, like gnocchi, sinks to the bottom of the pan. So what happens when you cook it? What makes the pasta rise? Well, starch is actually made up of two different carbohydrate molecules joined together, amylose and amylopectin. When pasta is cooked and it reaches about 60 degrees C, the starch granules absorb water and swell, and this causes the amylose to contact and attach to the amylose from neighbouring starch granules. Imagine, if you will, the way that the wax in a lava lamp is exuded and merges with other globules of wax. It's a similar process. Eventually, the starch is converted into a gel pervading throughout the cooked pasta. This gel contains more water and is less dense than the starch granules in raw dough. However, it's still too dense to make the pasta rise to the surface of the water. OK, so heating up the pasta makes it absorb water and lose density, but not enough to make it rise to the surface. What else is going on? This is where the egg comes into play. It is rich in emulsifiers which trap air inside the dough while it is being mixed and kneaded. The air remains in the cooked pasta, making it more buoyant. And it's the combined effect of the reduction in density as the starch becomes a gel and the buoyancy of the trapped air that makes the fresh pasta rise to the surface. Additional buoyancy may result from convection currents and steam-filled bubbles rising from the bottom of the saucepan during cooking and pushing the pasta up towards the surface. But why doesn't dried pasta rise to the surface in the same way? Dried pasta usually doesn't contain egg, so it contains less trapped air. When you cook dried pasta, the starch granules absorb water, just like when cooking fresh pasta. But this isn't enough to make the pasta rise to the surface. Thanks, Chris. Next time, we'll be tackling Trent's temperature question.
The temperature where I live recently hit minus 40 degrees. That got me thinking, is it better to walk or to run through the cold air? Should you run to reduce the amount of time out in the cold, or do the adverse effects of moving faster, like wind chill, outweigh the benefits of getting to your destination quickly? And if you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to George Salmond, Tim Cluttonbrook, Claudia Vasher and Sander van der Linden. Lewis Thompson put the programme together. Do join us next week when we'll be looking at the subject of plastic. Not so fantastic. Hello, Georgia here, just to let you know that the Naked Scientists are hiring at the moment. We're looking for a new radio producer to join the team here in Cambridge. So if you love communicating science and have a passion for podcasting, we would love to hear from you. Head over to nakedscientist.com slash job for more information about the role and for details on how to apply. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSLC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you at home very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. So if you need a go-to designer, a video editor, or a social media specialist for six days or six months, Upwork is how. And it's basically like they're right here in your office. Except they're not here here, so they can't hear Greg's remarkably loud typing. Hey, buddy! I take it back. You can hear that from anywhere. And Upwork professionals are proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how. Upwork is how.